0: The song you just heard was called World Events by Chris Testolini. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. Once a YouTube show, now a podcast. If you've followed the YouTube show, you know that we try to bring you a progressive, informed, and thoughtful take on world events. I'm Justin Podur. And if you want to get in touch, check out my blog, podur.org. That's P-O-D-U-R org. We'll be covering international politics, conflicts. We also touch on education, economics, social movements, a wide variety of political and economic and environmental issues. And we're starting off big uh, and ambitious. We're starting off with one of the most severe and... Also, one of the most polarizing conflicts uh, that's going on today, the war in Syria. For five years now, a civil war has raged uh, with millions of people. Uh, Maybe half the country's population has been displaced by the war. Hundreds of thousands, maybe 300,000 or even more have been killed. Uh, There have been interventions by half a dozen countries, uh, neighbors and more distant countries, including the U.S. and Russia. And right now, there's a ceasefire that may or may not hold. It's, a, it's been a polarizing debate because even anti-war activists, uh, people who have traditionally agreed on most things, don't agree on who's to blame or what to do. Debates on Syria, even within the left, have been very sectarian and vicious, I asked a colleague and friend, a longtime activist and professor named Stephen Shalom, author of Imperial Alibis and other books, to join me to debate Syria. Steve is a critic of U.S. foreign policy, a professor at the William Patterson University in New Jersey, and he specializes in the Middle East. I've learned a lot from Steve over the past 15 years or so, but we disagree on Syria. I see it as a Western-backed campaign of regime change. Steve, as a popular revolt against tyranny. Unlike most, though, we're friends and we managed to stay friends even through the debate. So what I'm hoping is that this debate will get listeners thinking about how to disagree, as well as the actual elements of the debate, the factual and other analytical disagreements and agreements that people on both sides of this debate might have. So without any further intro, I'm going to start into the debate. So Steve, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure to be here. Uh, Let me start with this question. You have said that you don't see the Syrian civil war in terms of a US campaign of regime change. Can you tell me how you do see it and what your thoughts are about it? Sure.
1: I think there are lots of places in the world where governments need to be changed as a leftist, as all of us being leftists, we support regime change on principle. That's what we want. We want change. We want to improve dictatorial, oppressive regimes and turn them into good democratic, responsive uh, socialist, etc regimes. So regime change isn't a dirty word for the left. Now, there are lots of movements in the world that have tried to overthrow governments. And they sometimes sought support from outside. That didn't lead the left to say, ah, that is now an illegitimate movement. We didn't say that about the NLF, the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam, because it got arms from the Soviet Union and China. We didn't say that about the FMLN in El Salvador, though they got arms through Nicaragua, through Cuba, from the Soviet Union, um, all of those were legitimate struggles. And we supported the people of Vietnam and we supported the people of El Salvador in their struggles. And so when the people of Syria, who lived under a terribly brutal dictatorship, rose up and tried to change their regime, first in a nonviolent way, And then when the repression became too intense in a violent way, I expressed my solidarity with the people of Syria. Were they receiving, and did they receive over time, arms from outside? Yes. Did they receive other kinds of support from outside? Yes. But the extent of their support from outside was so much less than the support coming in from outside, for the government of Syria, one talks about the uh, uh, the foreign jihadis uh, fighting against the Assad government, but there are foreign jihadis supporting the Assad government. I'm talking about the uh, uh, forces, uh, the the various Shia militias organized by Iran from Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm talking about Hezbollah. These are Islamic fundamentalists, and they are supporting the Assad government. Now, when the left looks at places like, let's say, uh, the Hezbollah Israeli conflict or the Hamas Israeli conflict, we don't say, oh, we must support the Israeli government because they are fighting against Islamic fundamentalists. We're critical of, it, of the Islamic fundamentalism of Hezbollah and Hamas. But we look at the justice of the situation. Is it right to oppose the Israeli occupation? Is it right to oppose Israeli aggression? Yes. And so in the same way, one should look at the situation in Syria and say, is the struggle against a dictatorship, a brutal dictatorship, a just one? Is it a struggle that people in Syria who share our political views, uh, leftists, anarchists. You have people like Omar Aziz, who was in exile from Syria as a political prisoner, went back in during the, uh, the uprising and helped to organize on anarchist principles the local coordinating committees. These are people who I see as, this would have been us had we been there. And... They've, they've taken arms from outside. Um, it's a tough decision whether to take arms from outside, whether to take any support from outside, because outsiders are interested in their own purposes. Um, and so you, you have to make a careful calculation. But I don't think it's something that Western leftists should be saying to Syrians who are under attack, you should not receive arms from Saudi Arabia. I'd rather there were no arms from Saudi Arabia. I'd rather they all came from better places. Uh, but alas, um, you got to take your arms where you can. Again, it's the same thing I would say to the people of El Salvador. Should you be taking arms from the Soviet Union um, in, in fighting against the murderous junta? Well, it'd be good if you could just order your weapons through Amazon, but you can't. And so... Uh, That's the situation we're in. Um, Now, unfortunately, what's happened over the course of the last four years, uh, I guess five years now, is that the democratic, secular, progressive forces in the Syrian revolution have been outnumbered and outgunned by some pretty rotten forces, Uh, that also oppose the Assad government. But this has happened for two reasons. One is they've been able, those rotten forces have been able to get outside arms while the good guys, in quotes, uh, have been unable to. This has tipped the military balance against them. And then the second reason is that Assad and his Russian backers, Explicit policy has been, let's not attack the jihadis. Let's attack the most progressive forces among the opposition because we will then be able to portray this as a struggle against terrorism. And so Assad actually released jihadis from prison, lots of them in the first um, in the first year in in twenty eleven. Lots of carefully documented studies have shown that the vast bulk of his military efforts were not against ISIS after uh, 2014, when it uh, came on the scene. And the Russian bombing has not uh, focused on ISIS. Um, It seemed to have focused precisely on um, the groups that might present a reasonable alternative to Assad. And so everybody... Um, or or lots of people say, oh, there is no one left among the opposition except for the jihadis. Well, um, that, that will become a self-fulfilling prophecy if they're allowed to be attacked all the time and called terrorists all the time. Um, but in fact, there are, there are different estimates. It's hard to know, but, um, there are probably uh, tens of thousands, probably something like 70,000 FSA units that are not jihadi. And there are lots and lots of civil society organizations in Aleppo and in uh, the Damascus area um, that are not jihadi as well. On the southern front, um Nusra is a much less significant factor uh, than it is in the north. Um, so there are places where there are still, um, where there's still hope for something decent to come out. Now, nevertheless, given the military balance, I think it would be good to get a ceasefire, perhaps a, a UN uh, modifi- um, uh a, a UN Monitored ceasefire, but uh, it's only going to happen under certain conditions. It's not going to happen if Assad and Russia, as their current position seems to be, says we are allowed to attack anyone we consider terrorists while the ceasefire is going on. Assad, in fact, has said uh, you know he he refuses to accept any. Uh, let up in his attack on terrorists. And if we, we in the left allow Assad to get away with what rotten regimes always do, call everybody who opposes them a terrorist, if we go along with that, we are helping him to maintain his dictatorial hold. If we really want to stop ISIS from spreading its influence, We need to follow in Syria the same approach that we all understand is needed in Iraq. In Iraq, we say, look, you've got a Shia sectarian regime, and as long as it is unable to establish itself as a government that earns the respect of its Sunni population, there's going to be a problem there. We understand that for Iraq, but The same kind of considerations take place in Syria. As long as you have the Assad regime, which has brutalized and and killed tens of thousands of Syrians, the opposition is not going to accept a ceasefire with him in control. Does the United States want regime change? Well, the United States and Russia actually agree on quite a lot. There's a difference. Russia wants Assadism with Assad. The United States wants Assadism without Assad. Um, it seems like the opposition will accept a ceasefire on those terms, on the U.S. terms. Uh, it's not the United States who is causing the opposition to hold out for the end of Assad. The opposition is never going to accept a situation where the guy who tortured their relatives to death is going to stay in power and uh, be in charge of their futures as well. So that's my take.
0: Okay. Thank you, Steve. Um, So I guess uh, before we kind of, talk about kind of react to each other's uh takes on it maybe i'll just do the same thing you did and present my my take because good i'm thinking about it in terms of a series of of efforts by the united states over the past few decades so you look at venezuela in 2002 or Haiti in 2004, or Honduras in 2009, or Iraq in 2003, and Libya. And especially Iraq and Libya, these are examples where they were countries, you know, I don't want to say Venezuela, Haiti, or Honduras, because these were all more or less democratic governments. But Haiti and Libya were dictatorships, they were tyrannies, and they were were overthrown um, by the United States. Uh, and 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 Western uh, various Western allies or coalitions, and so these were the the regional programs of regime change. And and when you when I look at the outcomes of these of Iraq, at the outcome of Iraq 2003, the outcome of Libya in 2011, these are the places where ISIS is the strongest. And so I see a really strong correlation between the rise of these dystopian um nihilistic kind of groups uh that are filling vacuums that are created in shattered societies um and uh and and u.s backed regime change efforts so what i see in syria is something similar i see uh you know, I agree with you about the, how it all began. It did begin with the Arab Spring, but it began with the Arab Spring in a country that was right on the border with, uh, uh, with Iraq, which had been forcibly regime changed. Uh, you know, with with a country that has a border with Israel and and some of its land occupied by Israel, and so um, that the. The turn towards an armed struggle was, uh, you know, it was it was hard. It was almost it was hard to it would have been hard to avoid. And so as it became a civil war, I see it as having become a proxy war with these Gulf, you know, Syria and I mean, not serious. Saudi Arabia and Turkey, especially, but also Qatar, uh, you know, sending more and more investments and more and more arms. And again, I agree with you on this, too, that um, they are more interested in arming and supporting groups that fulfill their aims and that are that are aligned with them ideologically and, uh, and not the progressive forces such as they are in a, in, in a place like Syria. And that's that's entirely, you know, that, that also could have been predicted. Um, and so what what I see happening in Syria is, like, the destruction of the country. I don't think this is going to, I don't think this kind of thing is going to end with a victory for the revolution, I I, I, didn't, I don't think that the out, you know the balance of forces in the region or in the world is one where that could happen. And I again I, I look when I think about Syria today, I think about Afghanistan, uh, you know, after the long campaign of of uh, civil war in the eighties and after that war ended when the when the russian backed government finally fell in 1992 it was this mujahideen free for all where whatever was left of the country was fully destroyed and what you have now is is this you know the us has reoccupied it and it's this like it's a completely shattered country completely unrecognizable from what it was in the 1970s, when the U.S. first started, and Saudi Arabia, interestingly, some of these same players first started their covert operations against that government for their own kind of geopolitical reasons. So I too hold out a lot of hope for a ceasefire. You know, I think that, I think that, um, I think that would be a, a, a really op- optimal outcome like just te- lowering the temperature trying to reduce the amount of uh of violence and destruction uh and uh, and but where we disagree is the the idea that uh, you know the prerequisite of this is that assad has to step down like if you're looking at a negotiation uh if you're looking at trying to end a war through some kind of a peace deal it can't be a prerequisite that the awful person that's been doing this awful thing to you has to go. If the Palestinians had said that, uh, you know, if Hamas says, well, Zionism, we're willing to have a ceasefire, it's just that Zionism, ethnic cleansing, settlements, and so on have to stop, and the, the Israeli government and regime has to go, that would people wouldn't think that was a serious proposal for a ceasefire. If if the Colombian uh, guerrillas that are actually you know pretty much on track to signing a peace deal had said you know we're willing to sign a peace deal except that this capitalist government that's been displacing and murdering peasants has to go as a prerequisite for the ceasefire, again nobody would be able to to take that as a as a serious proposal for an ending of hostilities. So you know the question of what what can we ask for in the negotiation versus what can we ask for as a prerequisite for the negotiation is, 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 is something that determines whether a deal is even possible. And so that, I think, is one of the major obstacles to actually stopping uh, the civil war. So I guess now we can kind of have a more free Discussion. I, I maybe you can just uh, you can just respond to what I have said.
1: Okay. Um, you know, th- think about uh, the situation in Vietnam. Um, the left's position was U.S. out. It has no legitimacy there. And when the NLF said, he and Q," the the two. Uh, leaders of the U.S. puppet regime uh, had to go, the left supported that position. We didn't impose that position, certainly if the Vietnamese wanted to accept something else, that was their right, and that's what our solidarity with them meant. But we didn't say, no, no, You should accept a surrender. There's no way you can have, at least as they see it, a regime run by uh, Assad just like a Shia sectarian regime in Baghdad is just not going to win the allegiance of those who for the last six years have been slaughtered and have been uh, tortured uh, by the Assad regime. Uh, it, I, I don't think the proper analogy is that uh, Hamas and Israel, should they accept a ceasefire in Gaza fighting, uh, and Hamas says, uh, you've got to end uh, Zionism and all, all its uh, evil fruit. Um, I don't think that's the situation here. Here it's, leaving Assad in charge of you. This is the guy who you're going to let him continue to arrest you. You're going to let him continue to torture you. You're going to let him continue to oppress you. Um, that doesn't seem like much of a compromise.
0: Right. Well, I mean, the so the Vietnam, the Vietnam analogy means that in this, in this, uh, comparison: Assad is the U.S., and so to me, the you know the the problem with that analogy is that
1: no, no, no. Assad, oh. Assad is uh, Assad is the two key regime.
0: Right, right. Okay, so that this is the but the Russia, kind of
1: Russia is the U.S.
0: Russia is the U.S. Okay, but the the thing is that before the civil war started. Assad had been in power for quite a while, and in, in my assessment in, in Syria, just like in Libya, the, the regime still has a considerable amount of support. And so the question is, what happens to those people? In the event of an opposition victory and an and opposition victory, uh, you know, I, I know you hold out hope and, you know, I, I, I wish I agreed with you about that. But it does seem to me that, uh, you know, what I've been seeing in my understanding of the situation <laughs> is that if if Assad's regime falls, it'll very quickly be uh, an ISIS or Nusra or that type of uh, Mujahideen kind of a situation. So, and I don't think that the opposition that we would like and we believe in, you know, that my, you know, my own Syrian friends would do well under that kind of regime. And I haven't heard anything, uh, you know, I haven't heard anyone think that, that anyone who thinks that, that, that they would do well under an ISIS or Nostra kind of situation. So the idea that... But, but notice, no, notice
1: okay, how you but, move. Okay. I'm sorry notice how you've moved. Um, what what I said is what seems like a um, a solution that could that could work mm-hmm. is removing Assad, but keeping his regime. That's the position of the United States that's been the position of the United States for a while, though now now it seems um, the United States is moving closer to uh, the Soviet position, uh, sorry, the Russian position. Um, But the United States has been very clear that it does not want to see the disbanding of the Syrian army, does not want to see the disbanding of Syrian security forces. Um, So to say that that kind of settlement would then put al-Nusra, let alone ISIS, Um, in power to uh, exterminate minorities um, doesn't seem like a realistic threat. On the other hand, leaving Assad as the sole ruler of the country and as, you know, the sovereign ruler with the power to call in additional, you know, foreign militias, et cetera, to help him, um, leaving him in power uh, will very much lead to uh, continued oppression of uh, people who have opposed him, so I don't think it's symmetrical. Uh, no one thinks that what's going to happen now is you're going to turn the country over to not just the opposition, but the most fundamentalist pieces of the opposition. That, that's not on, you know that's not in the cards. The question: okay. is, Can there be a settlement that doesn't leave full power in the hands of Assad?
0: Right. So, but but see, this is this is exactly this is exactly what we're disagreeing about. Because if it, like you're talking about a solution that is Assad, so-called Assadism without Assad, and and if you and you're saying that this may or may not be acceptable to the opposition. So this is sort of like we go from Mubarak in Egypt to Sisi in Egypt, and this is some this is going to be satisfying to the opposition. Now let's say that it is you know and and but, but, you know let, let
1: me be clear it's it's not what the opposition was fighting for of course but yeah. but yeah. but acceptable as a the basis for a ceasefire
0: right acceptable as the basis for a ceasefire the problem is a ceasefire that's not acceptable to both sides is not going to it's not going to happen so that you know what the way i see it is Saying that Assad has to step down in order for there to be a ceasefire is basically saying we are going for a military solution to this conflict. Like that's 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 my problem with the with that proposal. You make a demand that's completely unreasonable in context. I mean, it's morally completely reasonable. I don't I don't dispute that. You know, it, like I've heard you know from Af- you know peop- Afghans are are. I traveled with Afghans and there are pictures of this, one of these Mujahideen all over the banners of this, one of these Mujahideen all over Kabul, Ahmed Shah Massoud. And he's revered, even though he was, you know, a a military torturing sectarian war criminal. Uh, And I heard, you know, I was with some Afghans who said, I would rather see a goat. I would rather see a picture of a goat than see the picture of this person everywhere. Like, I understand the symbolic, you know, and and real pain that's caused by having to, you know, and it's a pers- it's a cult of personality. I understand that, but but that's like if a proposal is not not anywhere near being acceptable, then it's not a proposal for a negotiation. It's a proposal to not have a negotiation. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure,
1: but if if you look at the situation. Before Soviet uh, troops and planes and the the massive intervention from the uh, outside Shia militias, if you look at the situation there, Assad was really teetering. And there probably was a good chance that with just a little bit of outside aid, I mean, so, you know, one talks about the U.S. aid to the rebels, but the main contribution of the United States has been to make sure that decisive weapons, like anti-aircraft we- weapons, handheld anti-aircraft weapons, uh, that might have weakened the government just enough, that might have led forces in the regime to get rid of Assad and find some kind of uh, some kind of settlement. But see. The- that the outside Soviet Union came in in a situation that looked very much like the United States when its puppet wasn't doing well against the rebels, the U.S. started its bombing campaign. And um, I, I guess what I find striking is how the Soviet Union is again Russia, right? I
0: mean, they- <laughs> yeah, the,
1: the Russians have been behaving. Um, in much the way the United States behaved in Vietnam, bombing hospitals—and yes, you know the United States bombed that um, MSF hospital in Afghanistan—but um, the Russians are doing it systematically, according to um, uh, you know various human rights groups and uh, Doctors Without Borders, etc., doing it systematically, and so much of the left. Is writing articles uh, and circulating articles that say "Hooray for Russia!" Russia's got it right. Um, you know, would we have considered such a thing? Uh, you know, in in any other circumstance.
0: I mean, yeah. There's 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 obviously nothing to nothing to celebrate in the bombing of a hospital. We you know completely agree on that, or much less m- more than. One hospital, or the systematic attacking of hospitals, I I on this on this see what something you were saying earlier, uh you know the weapon that the Assad was teetering, and there was some kind of hope that that there would be some kind of coup against Assad, and the military would take over, um and. I remember hearing this kind of talk before Iraq before the Iraq invasion in 2003 and the, the point of this there's a couple of reasons I I, I want to bring this up like you mentioned the sectarian nature of of the government in Baghdad uh, being one of the major reasons for Sunni dissatisfaction and uh, and and the rise of Isis um, you know, this is it's it's important to remember I think like I really can't not remind people that this this is all an outcome of the US invasion and the US invasion in 2003 is when they did all of these things you're saying they didn't want to do uh, or they don't want to do in Syria they disbanded the army they did this debathification they virtually acted in a way that ensured an in, an insurgency and ensured Sunni disaffection they had this whole propaganda kind of construct for their counterinsurgency called the Sunni triangle i'm sure you remember and so sunnis were demonized by uh, the US uh, by the by the US uh, occupier when they were occupying Iraq and They're the ones that installed this government and now we're kind of You know we're kind of saying well look at look at what terrible decisions uh, The Iraqi government has made that led to the to the rise of Isis Well, it, it you know the Iraqi government is not a sovereign government It's a government that was installed and and set up and and maintained through a um, invasion and an occupation, and so uh, and and you know the fact that they hope for a coup in Syria or like some kind of softer type of regime change in Syria doesn't, to me, mean that you know th- these other options are are not on the table, and ultimately, you know I I don't think that I don't think that whatever leftists uh, there are that are celebrating. Russia and I, you know, I I mentioned this before when we talked, Steve, that I, I think you and I both feel really isolated, which is kind of ironic because one of us has to be wrong. I kind of feel like all of the left is uh, out there, kind of supporting this regime change campaign, and you kind of feel like all the left is out there supporting Assad. And uh, you know, it's it, I think it's just a sign of how what a what bad shape the left is in but um which we probably can agree on but in any case what what i see russia's intervention both armed and you know at the un and so on was in large part motivated by what they were seeing in iraq and libya and not wanting another country to fall into that kind of chaos
1: well look i think there's a real difference between what happened in Iraq in 2003 um, and what happened in many other places around the world where the U.S. gave some support to indigenous movements um, that may have pursued regime change in their countries. That is, I can tell the difference between a situation where there's some outside support, but where it's fundamentally a, a, a domestic movement and situations where there is an outside invasion, right? Every invasion, you know, when Hitler invaded Poland in uh, 1939, I'm sure there were some Poles who supported Hitler, and therefore you could say, uh, you know, it was a civil war. Um, but uh, I think that if you look at things carefully, you can tell whether this is fundamentally a domestic struggle with some outside support, uh you know, uh the anti-nuke movement in Europe in the nineteen eighties, right? So the uh the neocons all said, look, there's this Soviet, and this time it's Soviet, not Russian, there's this Soviet money, there's this Soviet money going to the anti-nuke movement. There was soviet money through the american communist party going to some people who were close to martin luther king okay and so the you know the southern racists all said this is a communist outside agitator plot and um they exaggerated the extent of that but the point is even if it existed we didn't say therefore the civil rights movement was discredited and we didn't say, and we don't say that about the, you know, European anti-nuke movement, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In the case of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, this was overwhelmingly an outside invasion, okay? except perhaps in the, you know, the Kurdish areas where you could say there was, you know, a substantial um, uh, movement already in opposition. But... Um, in, uh, in many other cases, what you've got is a domestic insurgency that has the right, in my view, to take arms wherever they can get them, uh, and if they have a substantial military threat against the government, elements of the government will still sometimes um, want to work out some arrangement, and that's um Uh, And that's often happened. And one last thing on the Iraqi government. Um, Yes, the the Iraqi government was installed after the 2003 invasion, but it's certainly not the case that the Iraqi government today is a U.S. puppet. If it's a puppet of anyone, uh, it's a puppet of the Iranians. right? Uh, Iran calls the shots in Baghdad to a much greater degree than the United States does.
0: I mean, yeah, and these are that I mean, I don't. I would kind of explain that in terms of invasions and occupations having unintended consequences. Um agree. agree. And so, you know, the, but but this is exactly okay. So there are two. There are two differences I identify between us. One is the idea of a, you know, whether we can tell whether something is fundamentally a, a domestically supported rebellion or some kind of a proxy war. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't want, I don't want to, again, I don't want to say I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to pronounce on, uh, you know, what, what the authenticity or, or value or, strength of the, of the Syrian, you know, Syrian popular pr- and progressive forces are. But I do think that in, in the Syrian context today, they are as you, and and I think you agreed, I think you said this earlier, they are vastly outgunned by the uh, Mujahideen or the jihad, so-called jihadi forces that are, that are being supported uh, for the victory by the Gulf states, you know, by Saudi and then and then by Turkey, and so there's the the consequences of this war going on. The longer the war goes on, um, without a ceasefire, without a, a negotiated settlement, uh, the the stronger those elements get. And I think you know it's pretty clear that the weaker and the more uh, devastated the any kind of progressives that we might identify with get. And so, you know, that's one that's one aspect that, uh, you know, I wanted to mention. And the other one is, in terms of an analytical kind of difference, it it did occur to me, and I wanted to kind of just discuss this with you that I think a lot of us who are viewing this as a regime change uh, kind of situation uh, are looking at it in terms of You know, what the Kurds have done in Syria, uh, you know, the independent zone they've uh, tried to create and then the Turkish attacks on that and the Turkey kind of de facto supporting ISIS in all these ways, opening the border, all in order to undermine the Kurdish struggle in Syria, which also spills over into Turkey uh, and and as well as things like Libya and so on. And I think that a lot of the people who view this, who are who view this as in terms of, like, Assad and Assad having to go, are looking at it more in terms of the Arab Spring and the continuity of the Arab Spring with uh, brought to Syria. And I wonder whether you have anything to add about that.
1: Well, uh, you know, of course, um, I support Kurdish self-determination, and um, and they've certainly been the victims of Turkey and other regimes, uh, for a long time. Um, it's interesting that, um, in, in Syria, the Kurds are the one group getting arms from and support from both the United States and Russia. And so, you know, the, the, the version of events that says this is regime change against the axis of resistance. Um, well, uh, When the Kurds are defending Kurdish majority territory or even territory that was at one time Kurdish majority where Arabs have been colonized into, one can support them. But um, the Kurds are now attacking uh, very strategic areas that have always been Arab areas that are majority um, Arab um, and I don't support them. And who does support them? The United States and Russia. Um, so, uh, the axis of resistance, uh, seems to be all against, uh, the ex- axis of resistance includes evidently the United States and Russia, uh, against, um, the, uh, the FSA forces that are trying to defend their part of Aleppo, um, and so, I mean, I think this is, um, you know, while there are some very exciting things going on in some Kurdish areas, um, in this, I think they are participating in cutting off, um, you know, some of the few surviving areas of uh, uh, of decent uh, hope and uh, democratic and secular uh, in. Uh, In Aleppo, in Syria, um, on the side of essentially on the side of the regime.
0: So, uh, you know, just on that point, I I do wonder what you think of the of the reporting by you know Charles Glass or Patrick Coburn or others who have said that that whatever weapons. Have been sent by the U.S. to the so-called moderate rebels have ultimately ended up fairly quickly in the hands of of Nusra. Like, is there a way to cut off uh, Nusra and ISIS? ISIS, in particular, which is a, a existential threat to the Kurds and has proven uh, itself that, you know, is there a way to cut them off uh, from that? Endless kind of pipeline from Turkey of recruits and supplies and so on, without cutting off uh, these forces that you talk about as being the these the the moderate rebels or the progressive rebels or the good rebels.
1: Okay, well, so um, if if all the arms going to the FSA ended up in the hands of ISIS or Al Nusra, then the odds of a Russian bombing attack hitting an FSA unit with anti-tank that, that had anti-tank weapons would be close to zero because they hardly exist. They're, uh, they're like those uh, subatomic particles that, you know, exist for one nanosecond and then disappear. Uh, but guess what? Lots and lots of their bombing attacks, you know, we, we, we later get reports interviews with the leader of this FSA group that had these weapons and they were bombed by the russians um so i think they're actually far more numerous than you think the, the uh the, the press reports of um the the rebels who were trained and very quickly defected to or turned their weapons over to al-Nusra, what's interesting about those units is that those were units that the United States insisted. They had to sign something at the beginning as part of their arming and training that they would use their arms only against ISIS and not against Assad. Very few, That's something that most rebel groups were not willing to accept. Um you say Isis is an existential threat um to many Syrians they look around and they count, count the number of people that Isis has killed and they count the number of people that Assad has killed um, and they see both as serious threats and they notice that if Isis is such an existential threat, how come Assad doesn't seem to be attacking them and how come? If the Russians think ISIS is such an existential threat, why are they bombing in all these areas where ISIS doesn't exist? What that says to me is that um, there are lots of different forces here and we can't just amalgamate them all into one thing and say the opposition. Um, you know, so for example, I just, uh, uh, I just read a comment on an article on... Uh, Znet, right? And somebody wrote, "Ah, look, the rebels have just the uh, the rebels have just planted bombs in Damascus and Homs." Yes, there were these two terrible ISIS terror attacks uh, that killed a bunch of civilians. Um, but to say rebel bombs as though all rebels are the same, and that anyone who opposes Assad is in the same category, um, you know, they're not.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I I guess I I guess if in a if I could boil down our disagreement to fundamentals, I think it's it's really, you know, I'm I'm mainly afraid of the consequences of this. Of a of a regime change, it it doesn't actually sound to me like if you're talking about Assadism without Assad, it doesn't really sound to me like you're uh, you're even talking about regime change anymore.
1: What, what I my, my position is, I support regime change around the world, and I think it was a very bad move for the left to adopt this language as though. This is something that's obviously bad, thinking about regime change. But well, I mean, we that, that, yeah. should be a, that should be sort of, of course we support regime change. Okay, But, but you're trying
0: to reclaim, yeah. yeah. It sounds to me like you're trying to reclaim the word because, you know, the reason I think everybody opposed regime change is, uh, as a phrase is because it's basically coming out of Iraq 2003, right? Like this was a neocon kind of slogan, like we're going to go for regime change in Iraq and real men want to go to Tehran and we should bomb their countries and invade them and convert them to Christianity and all of that stuff. So this is the kind of regime change that that we're opposing.
1: Right, but I but I think um, if the, the left... Should have had some adjectives there to make clear that regime change in and of itself is not a bad thing. And so, you know, even in 2003, um, I recall being, you know, very uncomfortable with seeing the uh, um, the Michael Moore movie that showed, uh, uh, you know peaceful people hanging out in the park in, uh, in Baghdad, um, as though here's a swell government that the U.S. is trying to regime change. No, our position should, should have been, we hate the guts of that government. We would love it to be regime changed, but we oppose any U.S. invasion.
0: But see, it, it is hard to oppose U.S. invasion if you commit to, if you commit to the idea of regime change, uh, you know, everywhere, uh, all the time, because, you know, having accepted that, that, you know, this or that regime, like we, we can decide that this or that regime has to go, how do you then say, and therefore, uh, but, but but just because of that therefore it doesn't mean that the US should get involved.
1: Well, opposing US invasions and supporting revolutions, you know, if you're a revolutionary, you know, you support revolutions against unjust regimes. Okay? I mean, you know, this isn't uh this isn't only sort of a fringe left-wing view, you know, the idea of regime change, you know, you can read it in the uh the Declaration of Independence, you know, people have the right of revolution. um, And, uh, you know, of course, we support that. It doesn't mean that we American leftists or Canadian leftists or Western leftists tell people in other countries what they should be doing. But if they rise up against their government, what is the basis for not saying they have the right to do that. Um, and if they uh, and so some people have hidden behind the fact that, oh, well, Syria is a sovereign country and therefore Russia's aid to Syria is all legitimate, while any aid to the rebels is illegitimate. But that wasn't the position we took with El Salvador. That wasn't the position we took with uh, you know South Vietnam. Um Again, we could tell when the U.S was going into South Vietnam that that was a U.S invasion even though even though the United States was asked in by the uh, you know the the government of South Vietnam. It was a government though that wouldn't have stood for a day without US support, just as Assad would not have survived without... Russian and Iranian support.
0: Well, yeah, but the problem with that is, you know, the the problem with the problem is not telling the difference between a, an outright invasion and uh, a revolution. The problem in Syria is trying to tell the difference between a civil war and a proxy war. Would Assad have have fallen uh, without the investment from? Saudi and Qatar and Turkey and the U.S. in the in the first case, I mean that's you know that's one of the that's one of the questions, right? It's not it's not it's it's not the case that there was a revolution and then the Russians entered to crush it. There was a whole lot of things that happened in between.
1: Right, but the scale of aid from the Russians and the Iranians always exceeded the scale from outside. Uh, that supported the rebels, right? I mean, you know, um, modern planes, uh, you know, compared to, uh, you know, rifles and, you know, things like that. Uh, I mean, you know, sure, you could ask if, if there was zero outside arms provided to the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam, There was zero outside arms. Um, They still would have gotten some arms from defections, just as the FSA in Syria had defecting soldiers. Um, And, and, you know, let me just say one thing about uh, the the turn to violence there. Um, You know, I have a lot of uh, uh, committed pacifist friends and comrades who say, Um, You know, the move to a military struggle in Syria was uh, was a bad move. Um, And it certainly was a tragedy. But, you know, then I've read uh, accounts like in the the recent book, uh, uh, Burning Country by uh, uh, Robin Yassin Kassab and uh, Leila al-Shami, who say, look, you're a soldier in Assad's army. Your officers tell you, shoot on these crowds. At some point, some said, we're not going to shoot on those crowds. The officers then take out their guns to shoot you. Um, you, So you either say, I'm going to die here, or you're going to take up arms. And uh, so even though the local coordinating committees originally put out statements saying, Please, please let us not turn this into a military struggle. Military struggles always have you know, negative consequences. And that was a statement I, I sympathized with. Um, I can also understand how under certain circumstances, because I'm not an absolute pacifist, uh, under certain circumstances, um, that might not be possible. And so they got some arms from outside, Um would they have been able to survive just by defections? Um, I don't know. Um, I suspect very few revolutions around the world uh, could have survived if they got zero arms from outside against a well-armed government. But we don't um, we don't consider those outside arms to immediately discredit any movement.
0: Yeah, I mean it's just the 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 presence of so many of other elements and variables in the region whether it's al-Qaeda and ISIS and and what happened in Iraq and and you know even even well yeah in the Kurdish regions Turkey all of those things add a whole you know a whole a whole bunch of complexity that makes it really hard to assess this in terms of a you know in terms of a revolution trying to overthrow a dictatorship i think you know i'm sure that would that's part of what is going on like i do agree that that at least was part of what what was going on and and maybe still but i just think there is there is too much else going on to to be able to abstract that out um well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, if you want, if you want to add anything, I you know thank you so much, Steve. I, I really think it's really important for people who disagree as much as we do and who agree as much as we do on everything else to be able to talk about this because the debates that I have seen have been so sectarian that you know, to be able to talk about it with a with a real friend and honestly, you know a mentor as well has been it's really important, and I appreciate it a lot. Glad
1: to do it, and I uh, I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks.
0: That was uh, Stephen Shalom and I debating Syria. Thank you for listening to the Ossington Circle. Uh, you just heard some music by Chris Testolini, the song World Events, written... Especially for the Ossington Circle podcast. I'm Justin Podur, and if you want to read more, subscribe to the mailing list. You can do all of that at podour.org, podur.org, P O D U R.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.